Welcome to my podcast, Everyday Sublime, the podcast that sheds light on yin yoga and meditation. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm really glad you're here. A small bit of news before today's episode starts. I want to let you know that I compiled a series of reflections that serve as an overview to the essential themes of yin yoga. This series is based on many of the most common questions I receive from students in my training programs. It's free to all new subscribers. All you need to do is sign up for my newsletter so that I can start emailing them to you. You'll get them automatically about once a week. And to sign up, just go to joshsummers.net forward slash subscribe. And as a bonus, you'll also get two practice videos, one sequence that focuses on the spine and the other that focuses on the hips. I'm very excited to share this material with you, my listeners, and I hope that the videos and reflections will continue to support your practice of yin yoga. Okay, now for today's episode, the final installment of my interview with Dr. Timothy McCall. Timothy is the medical editor of Yoga Journal and also the author of the bestseller, Yoga as Medicine. A few years ago, Timothy was diagnosed with an oral squamous cell cancer that had spread to his lymph nodes. The cancer and his path through treatment to a cure is the subject of Timothy's new book, Saving My Neck, A Doctor's East-West Journey Through Cancer. In this final installment, Timothy and I talk about some of the broader life lessons that he discovered in his recovery from cancer. We look at how an illness can be a real moment of opening, an opening to explore lots of unfinished business. And we consider all the various levels of healing that can occur when we start to open to the things that have been sealed off or walled off from our conscious mind. And now, without further ado, I once again bring you Dr. Timothy McCall. The book that you wrote really is a memoir of your journey through a holistic response, if you will, to this diagnosis. Like you, I mean, you attack it from the conventional side in the West, you get into acupuncture, you're getting, you're going to India and getting months of Ayurvedic treatments. uh, And you're also excavating your own personal psychology and history, um, kind of like bringing together all these threads uh, trying to make sense and give meaning or shape meaning around it. Um, and I kind of wanted to spend some time talking about maybe the psychological, spiritual side of the Im- impact of this uh, process for you or this of going through treatment for you. Because um, you do, you reminisce about your early childhood and kind of, it seems like you're speculating around some of some things that occurred, some events that may have occurred that put in motion certain things that may have contributed to sure I, i'm not sure how, how how strong your speculation is on that um but that's why i'm asking you is like do you think there's something that happened a direct connection or is it just more speculation on your part around these the early traumas because just to uh, journalistically spell it out here you you had a complicated birth and as a result of the complicated birth, you were in an incubator for at least a month or two? 
Uh, actually, a little bit less than a month. A little bit less a month, but deprived of, as you talk about, deprived of the, that vital human contact. Because that you were that was a time right. when there was this erroneous so, view that children, if they were disturbed or touched in the NICU, that that would that would cause it ill health. Apparently, yeah, it was, it was really this this idea that 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 touch was a bad thing, and that and that caregivers should not be touching their patients and. And, and, and there really was this unfortunate thing. This was overturned in the 1960s uh, when there were these kind of infamous studies done by a psychologist at my alma mater, University of Wisconsin, Harry Harlow, uh, who, who found out that, that baby monkeys deprived of maternal touch and contact had profound emotional and cognitive impairments that lasted their whole rest of their lives. And, and so... You know, I, I definitely think that I had a pretty traumatic start to my life. I also had a mother who was, for her own psychological reasons, not that capable of empathy, uh, not that happy to have a, a kid who, who didn't get the normal chance to bond with me. She went for emergency surgery right after the delivery. I went to the you know, the, to a box the size of a microwave oven where I spent the next month, you know. So, and so we know that that contact between the mother and child, that, that, that inhaling the, the smell of the mother's skin, that hearing the, the maternal heartbeat, that the hearing the voice that resonated through the amniotic fluid during the pregnancy, that all these things are very calm, calming to the child. And I, for my whole life, and until recently, largely due to my yoga and Ayurveda practice, I had a jacked up nervous system. I was just like overreactive. Like, like if I just heard a loud sound go off, like a car outside or something. I would get this sudden, quick knot in my stomach, just completely involuntary. It just just happened to me, and I mean, it just was twitchy. I had insomnia, uh, you know, and during my medical residency, where the sleep schedule was disrupted all the time, I just slept terribly, and it made that whole time much worse. And, and so, you know, I, I talk about in a totally speculative fashion, because the reality is, in a single case, looking back in retrospect, you can never know. You know, actually, as you're talking, I realize I framed the question not, not in the best way. Um, it's not that you were sort of trying to locate a, a definitive historical event or moment and, and, and pinning that to what set in motion you getting cancer 55, whatever, how many years later, it's more, um, I think, I, I got the sense that the cancer itself triggered an, an exploration in you that facilitated a healing, whether you got over the cancer or not. And I think right. and that's something that I've heard elsewhere, too, is like, you know, there, you might not get cured, but you can heal. And there's a differentiation right. between healing and getting cured. Right. Um, and I feel like that's the holistic piece that, that you, that, right. of, of the journey that you went on. Yeah. And, and so I would say this. I mean, part, what you're saying is, is mostly correct. But I would, I would say this. I was on that path of spiritual and psychological inquiry for many years prior to my diagnosis. 
But but the nature of of holism, again, body, mind, spirit, everything simultaneously, whenever possible, is that work continued on during my cancer diagnosis, treatment, and recovery. And 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 the fact is I continued to make progress. Now I ruptured my quadricep tendon a few months before my cancer was diagnosed. So even though the main thing I was dealing with was cancer, I was also rehabbing my quadricep muscle because that was what was going on with me. And for years, I've been doing psychological inquiry, kind of looking back at some pretty painful stuff that happened to me in my life and my family and beyond and trying to understand it and understanding the pull that had on my own psychology and the way that it had kept me stuck. And, and that stuff continued to be a part of the program with the cancer. And, you know, and I think that as it turned out, that doing things like fasting and making my diet even better than what it, it was already pretty darn good, but even better, and then getting these lo- the longest Ayurvedic treatment I've ever had in India, and all the various things I did created the space where that psychological work and spiritual work also took several very significant steps forward. So I had a vata imbalance that I'm pretty sure started in utero. You know, anxiety, insomnia, all that kind of stuff that that I had for a lot of my life. Even though the anxiety was mostly beneath my awareness, I can see now how fear shaped so many decisions I made in my life. Okay, so but but I didn't understand that. So I came to terms with that. I understood the way my troubled relationship with my mom had led my heart to really not be open. Like I really started to grok that in the years before I was diagnosed. And then that work continued. And I think in a sense, I got so many benefits of all the different stuff I did that suddenly, you know, about a year and a half ago, after my Vata being abnormal on pulse every day for as long as I've been measuring it, it became normal and it's remained normal for the last year and a half. My nervous system that had been so twitchy is not so twitchy. Then I continued my psychological work and the heart opening and the stuff I was doing to try to repattern my emotional brain, you know, using yogic practices, bhakti yoga, devotional yoga, other things to try to repattern some of my emotional responses, you know, using the ability of the brain to change itself, via neuroplasticity, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it just seemed that in the period right around about a year uh, after finishing treatment, it kind of just all started to come together. Hmm. And maybe 10 months after. And, and, uh, and yeah, so now, it's, it's an interesting thing is, people see me now and they say, you know, that I look way better now than I did a year ago. And, and a year ago, I looked better than I did before I had cancer or before I was diagnosed. Because what I realized is that probably I had metastatic cancer undiagnosed for years. Mm. How many? Who knows? But cancers tend to 
grow slowly, or many of them grow slowly over a long period of time, even decades. People don't often understand this, but cancer is often slowly growing for a long time before it's diagnosed. And I think on some subtle level, it had undermined me. And so that once the cancer was gone or maybe just significantly cut back, suddenly all this other stuff and all the fruits of all the other holistic stuff I've been doing was able to come to the fore. And I seem to have made, just made huge improvements. So, so yeah, and, th and that's the thing. I mean, it sounds trite, but so much in my life is better now than it was before I had to go through the cancer, you know, journey. And the cancer journey is part of what facilitated a lot of that healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but um, you do spend a lot of time writing about your parents. And I had the feeling that I was reading a um, kind of a Roald doll story at <laughs> certain points. And the, the, the characterization of your parents, I think you called your mother Hurricane Betty. Right. And, and at one point you refer to your father, who you often call Pop, um, you refer to him as a supercilious prick. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and there's 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 anecdotal evidence to support both of those monikers. Um, uh, but this, this some of the stuff that happened to you as a kid also there was a way that as a reader I found these vignettes troubling in that they were very traumatic and even your your rendition of them were kind of uh, matter of fact trite to the point of begging for more explanation of what was going on. So two, I just want to hi highlight two. One, you fell out of a window. You said 11 during the interview? 11, or? 11 years old, yeah. Oh, I thought I get confused. I thought that was at five. But there was some hot night in, in, at a house you were, you were living in. And yeah. You, I, don't, I didn't quite understand. How did you go from your bed to the pavement outside your second floor window? Okay, so, so I had been playing in the afternoon. It was a sweltering hot day in Milwaukee where I grew up. And uh, I'd been playing tackle football without a helmet. Probably had had a mild concussion or something. Because I came in the house after football. I didn't want dinner. That never happened. I didn't want dinner. And then I came down at about 9 o'clock and I requested a bowl of shredded wheat. Okay, Shredded wheat is what my father ate. I didn't need shredded wheat. I would like eat like Captain Crunch or something like that. You know, so... Totally bizarre behavior. It was it was one of these nights where there was no wind and it was hot and humid. And I took the screen off my window and I and I slept right next to the window. Because the screen presumably would be occluding airflow. Right. To that, was, that, that, that was my 11 year old logic and, 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 and maybe some truth to it, who knows, but I, I, I took it off. So I, I was sleeping right next to the window and, you know, again, probably had a concussion or something it was clearly not normal. I had a dream that I was going to climb out the window and down the drain pipe to the ground. And in the dream, I remember thinking, Oh, I'm almost to the ground. I can jump the rest of the way. And then I woke up on the pavement uh, outside the window, uh, to, you know, to, to, you know, down on the ground. And, this is, and so this is a second story window, second story window. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so, and, and, and I had, I, and my wrist was broken in six places Ugh. and, and, uh, and, and it was a crazy, crazy story because we had a carriage house, coach house behind our house that was rented out to a young couple. They came back in the middle of the night, presumably from a bar, spotted me lying on the ground and concluded the best thing to do would be to drag me in the back door and leave me there, which is what they did. I'm sorry. It's, I'm laughing. But it's so preposterous. I know. I know. Well, you know, a friend of mine you had to have a quote up on a refrigerator that the most improbable things happen in real life and bad fiction. So, you know, it's like that's what happened. And anyway, I wound up at the hospital, uh, treated for a wrist fracture. I think I probably had multiple spinal fractures ever missed, which is why my spine then fused together in, in, in adulthood, I think, to protect, to protect my spinal cord. Right. So there's that trauma and that connection to the, the spinal cord stuff we were talking about earlier. But also, there was a trauma when you were five. You were hit. It was a hit and run. Yeah, I was, I was hit by a car. Yeah, I was, I was hit, hit and run when I was five years old. I had a head injury. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so. And, and you know, I, I don't have all that much memory of that. Right. Uh, you know, but, but yeah. But, it, but it, I, it, I also get the feeling that there's sort of this adult obliviousness to these, these traumas. Not part of what, like, this sort of, like. Well, you know, the, the, the weird thing was that. I think the stuff that happened very early in the life, the kind of, to some extent, parental neglect and, 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 uh, you know, grew up in an Irish Catholic family where no one ever expressed love verbally or physically. There was no hugging, no kissing, no, I love yous. It was just kind of a shutdown kind of environment. I had a mother who had deep psychological stuff that distracted her from really being an attentive caregiver. She did the best she could, her intentions were good. She didn't abuse me in any way. She just wasn't able to give me what I needed as a kid. I think that's the trauma that really wounded me. So yeah, I got hit by a car, yeah, I fell out of a window, and I suffered bad physical trauma. I don't view those as being emotionally traumatic. I don't think they contributed you know, to, to any kind of emotional, I don't think they made my emotional trauma worse. That's my take on it. I, I, I could be wrong. I just think they're just, they presented various physical challenges that I've had to deal with. Uh, and, and, you know, some of the weirdness I talked about earlier about my neck and the flow of prana and through the fascia of my neck may have been from that car accident because I was hit in the head and then thrown to the ground and I ended up having blood all over my over my skull. And the woman who picked me up and rescued me from the street wound up with a dress completely covered in blood. And so, and so I had some head and presumably neck trauma at that time before the spinal injury from from the fall out of the window. So I, you know, I wasn't trying to be blasé or, or or kind of you know not talk about those traumas as being big deals. But to me and my understanding psychologically, spiritually, I don't see those as big deals. I see them as having created various physical challenges that I've had to deal with. And, and you know, but, 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 but I, to, to me, the, the family stuff 
Well, that's and, that's the thing. It seems like the, the 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 way that those physical traumas were metabolized, if you will, by your family, seems to highlight or shed light on the the more emotional neglect that. Uh, or, well, so so you know, I was five years old when I was hit by a car. I was kind of idolized the paper boy, and so I had followed him. I left the house, followed him on his paper route, including when he crossed a busy street where I got hit by the car. Okay, now my mother, who was a stay-at-home mom, and I was the only kid in the house. Well, actually, I had a, I had a, I had a younger sister, an adopted sister, who, who was there too. But we were the only kids in the house. She had no idea I wasn't home. You know, so because because I think she was just off in her own world. You well, know, that's, that's sort of what I get. That's my comment about a rolled doll kind of weirdness to the whole thing. I mean, you, you had I mean, there's lots of things going on, but you had your parents were taking in foster children all the time. And you had two uh, two siblings already, right. B- right. blood siblings. So it just seems like. There's a lot of uh, odd things going on. But what's interesting, and, and maybe as a way to sort of wrap this part up, is um, you didn't mention this in the book, but I wonder, I mean, it, 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 was, it leapt out at me and was so significant that if you look at the arc of your life from the beginning and that month in the incubator and lacking touch right. as your starting point, and then... Towards the end of this healing journey, you really got into Ayurvedic treatment, which from what I kept seeing was it was explicitly a ton of touch, human touch. You were getting- and, 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 and MFR, I did a bunch of myofascial release treatments during my rehab from cancer. It was incredibly helpful to me. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and, and uh, yeah, no, no, t- touch, touch. And again, of course, we know that the skin, it, it comes from the same, you know, embryologically from the same tissue as the nervous system, that, you know, the ectoderm. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so I think that with my jacked up state of my nervous system, touch has been deeply therapeutic to me, even before I got into yoga and body work, just getting massaged cuddling with my girlfriends or whatever all that was like on some deep level like just something i profoundly uh sought and and, and seemed to benefit from right you know there, so there was that sort of symmetry where by the end you were seeking those those forms of treatment but also in your spiritual practice and you write about this you you developed a um sort of an inner practice around a goddess figure right our, our mother yeah. figure that was meant right. to be kind of a way of transforming these i don't know what to call them uh, early early in life deficiencies and kind of make up for that right yeah so how'd you come to that practice you know it was one of those things where it came to me uh i was uh i met this swami at an ashram who I got talking to her. I, this was right when I was kind of starting. Because, you know, I went through most of my life thinking that my childhood was happy and that I really didn't have any big problems. I mean, yeah, my mother was a little limited and, you know, she couldn't really be intimate with anybody, you know, emotionally. And it's just like, you know, I, but I, I, never, I didn't think it affected me that much. And then I kind of got to a point where and I first had to totally approach it intellectually. 
I thought, okay, a woman as emotionally limited as my mother, who you know probably had a personality disorder, and and who was not really capable of empathy, who wasn't really bonded to this little kid in front of her, who's too distracted by her own suffering, I ended up concluding, to really be there for me. You know, that that had to have had a profound effect on me. But I couldn't feel any of that. I had to get there initially totally through thinking about it. Just intellectualization was my initial way into it. And I just figured it had to have been hard for that kid. And I, and I, and, and then I started to figure out that, oh, actually, there was a profound way that my heart was closed. My heart was closed in giving love to other people. And the one that I think even surprised me even more, accepting love from other people. I was blocking it both ways. So, you know, this Swami heard my story and she said to me, you need the mother, you know, not your mother, the mother, which is this idea, you know, I think oftentimes Hinduism is misunderstood as being polytheistic when ultimately it's really one God. And these are all just different ways of describing some aspect of the same one thing that we can call the universe or God or whatever we want to call it. And I, and I'm, you know, I was traumatized by religion as well as a kid. So I wasn't initially drawn to any of this stuff, but you know, I ended up having, a conversation with the well-known Ayurvedic teacher David Frawley at, 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 at the same ashram where I, where I met this Swami. And I told him a little bit about my story. He said, well, you know, bhakti yoga, devotional yoga is even useful to atheists. That you can worship and say mantras and pray, and which I do. So I pray to you know, an eight-armed Indian goddess with, you know, a sword and a discus and a mace and, you know, all these weapons in her arms and then a flower and then one hand in a kind of palm out signaling, have no fear. So I say mantras, including this morning, you know, I meditate in this kind of devotional way to this goddess. Now, I don't believe that God has ever existed outside of people's imagination. It's not like I, I like actually like believe in it, but I just see it as a kind of figurative representation of this kind of maternal energy, this kind of nurturing energy, which is a feature of the universe. You know, we're, we're, we're brought to this planet where there is sunlight and food and water and air and the things we need are there. There's this kind of nurturing energy. You can view it as being part of the universe. So essentially, these devotional practices I did were a way to try to tap into that universal energy and use it to slowly reprogram my brain to see if I could take my heart that I worried was not going to be openable. I mean, I'm really worried that after, you know, 50 years of it being shut down, that maybe that capacity would be already lost. Uh, but I also had seen how yoga had helped me repattern my very troubled body and repattern my nervous system. 
you know, other things, you know, improve my terrible sleep, mm-hmm. stop me from being a mouth breather, all the things that used to be true of me, you know. So, so I thought, well, I'm just going to try this, and and I've been doing it for, it's, it, I guess it's about nine years since I started this bhakti practice. It's made a huge difference in my life, and and I actually have seen a lot of heart opening both ways and a growing in empathy because I realized kind of. I was a little challenged, like my mother, I was a little challenged in the empathy department. You know, you know, we often talk about meditation for its physiological benefits. But one of the big things, yogically seen, I'm sure it's true in Buddhism too, is that when you meditate, stuff bubbles up from the, from the depths. And you end up seeing stuff about yourself. Like, so figuring out how profoundly wounded I was. That's the fruit of meditation. Yeah, one one American monk, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, I was on retreat with him once, and he said, "Meditation is just draining the flooded the flood in your own basement. <laughs> you drain the flood of your in your basement, and then you can actually start to see what's there. It's molding and rotting, and not not very helpful. Um, and it sounds like uh, there was this trans, like a tantric transformation of this past." Past history in within within the the crucible of this 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 goddess practice that that has opened your heart. I'm I'm going to say something which I'm only going to say to you because we are friends and I feel comfortable. I can say this with you to to you. There's a vignette at the end of the book that I want to worry warn you about. You you kind of give an example of of how your heart's open in that you're at a conference and at the end of the conference there's one of the hosts that you you approach and you, you she it's a woman and you say to her. Um, you're such a love bunny, <laughs> and she her now her reaction her response was something about to, to comment commenting on how open your heart is. But I worry that I just I just you know as a friend, got to worry yeah. about the love bunny comments because that could get you into Joe Biden territory pretty quickly. <laughs> you know, in this particular context, it, it, it was cool. I I, I am. That, that is the only time I've ever told anyone in my life, you are such a love bunny. This is someone who I had really connected with. And I saw her just before we were both about to leave this conference. And she just looked at me and she had this kind of look of compassion in her eyes and just this like maternal sweetness. And, you know, there was zero sexual about this. Nothing there at all. So so and it was just. I, and I, that was the way I chose to express it just spontaneously in that moment. But yeah, no, I, she's the only one I've ever accused of being a love bunny. Well, you know, honestly, as, as someone who has known you, the fact that you're using that phrase is evidence itself of a heart opening. The former Timothy McCall would never have called someone a love bunny. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. So, uh, so, and, 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 you know, the, the downside is that it may have put me perilously close to Joe Biden territory. What can you do? Hey, well, it's not too late if you want to jump into the 2020, 20 ring. <laughs> I, 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 I think I'll just watch. Thank you though. <laughs> well, in all seriousness, I do want to say, uh, it is great to see you. Uh, and you. it has been a while, but you do seem unbelievably vibrant. Um, I, 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 it's been too long for me to compare, but it, it, it seems like you're you're more vibrant than when I remember Well, you know, it's last. funny. I had I, I went and met a friend for for tea uh, just a couple of days ago, and, and she's a, a dear friend, but I only see her maybe once a year. 
And she saw me last year. And she is, by the way, an Ayurvedic practitioner and also trained in Chinese medicine. And, and she said to me last year, oh, she was so happy to see me. She said, because she has really had this experience that the people who go through cancer and then work to get back to where they were, but don't make any more progress, that ultimately a lot of times those people don't do that well. But to her, I look better than, than I did before, you know, before, like, so I, I look better. And she saw me again a couple of days ago and she said, you look better than you did last year. And she said, in fact, you look better than I've ever seen you look. Yeah. And, and so that's the weird thing because, yeah. And it, it, of course, I don't want to be too superficial. It's not so much about how you look per se. It's it's what the, the looking represents, and this, right. some, this is an important piece around holistic versus reductionistic medicine that we didn't mention. But it's maybe a good note to end on, which is that you know often reductionistic medicine, just like you said, they just like they can get you back to what you were like before you got the disease. That's fine. So it's like the absence of the disease is 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 the endpoint of success in that model. Right. Versus holistic medicine, which is like, how do you do, how do you support a thriving life? How, how do you find fulfillment? Right. How how do how do you you know maximize your efficiency and ability to enjoy and give and you know be present for your own life? And 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 unfortunately, modern medicine never goes there. And you know, as I had to do, if you want to bring that piece to your modern medicine, which I would recommend, you may have to take charge of it yourself or find some skillful help to help you do it. Yeah, well, your book is a wonderful roadmap for, for some, I think. Um, so I hope it, it finds itself into the right hands. Um, I really want to wish you the best of luck with it and thank you so much for your time. You've been extremely generous in this long, rambling interview that we've, I've done here, but I think there's gonna be a lot of great stuff to, uh, to share with folks from it. Well, Josh, long before the podcast, you and I were known to have long, rambling conversations that went even longer than this. So this is just tapping into that. So it was my, my great pleasure to be here and, and to see you again as well. Thanks again so much for coming on today. My pleasure. Okay, that concludes my interview with Dr. Timothy McCall. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can support the podcast by sharing an episode or two with a friend or sharing through your social media channels. That would be very much appreciated. You can also pick up a copy of Timothy's book, Saving My Neck, and there's a link for that in the show notes. And as a final parting reminder, if you'd like to receive your free access to my Essentials of Yin Yoga program, just head over to my website, www.joshsummers.net forward slash subscribe. There you'll sign up for my newsletter and all good things will start flowing your way. Thanks so much for listening today and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.